1: uh, Romans 11, 33-36, we're looking today at the doxology. Doxology just means a word of praise. To some people, this is the word of praise, the greatest doxology in the Bible. I think that's the case. It's remarkable. But for me, the personal challenge is this is, this is the most difficult passage probably I've ever had to preach. Now, I know we've been through some interesting and difficult passages in Romans 9 and 10 and 11. We looked at some controversial and difficult doctrines. But in a completely different way, this may be one of the hardest sermons I've ever had to preach. Very different. Not that there's anything controversial in here or difficult for us to hear. It's just so high. It's so lofty. It's beyond our ability to to reach up and grab it. And I'm encouraged in that by a mentor of mine who I never met, died a hundred years or so before I began ministry here, uh, Charles Spurgeon. And he said this, I will affirm that there is no man living who can preach from this text a sermon worthy of it. Well, I'm free. I don't have to worry. I can (laughs) nowhere to go but up. (laughs) No matter what I do, (laughs) it'll be good enough because no one is equal to it. Spurgeon went on, he said, Nay, that among all the sacred orators and eloquent pleaders for God, there did never live and never will live a man capable of reaching the height of the great argument contained in these few simple words. I utterly despair of success and therefore will not make an attempt to work out the infinite glory of this sentence. Our great God alone can expound this verse for He only knows Himself... And he only can worthily set forth his own perfections. That's the end of the Spurgeon quote. You know what I think? God is going to be preaching this sermon to us for eternity. We're going to be learning what is true and what is stated in this doxology. Here we come, I think, to the final resting place of all deep theology. The terminal stop of all deep thoughts about God. It just ends up worship. We learn about God. We take in ideas about God. He teaches us who He is and what He's doing and what He yet plans to do in the future. And what happens? We just respond and worship. Revelation responds. He reveals and we respond. And here is the man, the Apostle Paul, who is writing the Revelation, lifted up by the Spirit to write things that even he did not fully comprehend. And he gets to this place and he just can't continue without praising and worshiping God. The view is astounding. Frankly, the deeper uh, our understanding of God, the more profound will be our worship. Stunned and amazed and stupefied, take your breath away, put your hand over your mouth, worship, the more you understand who God is. Almighty God, His ways, His plans, His strategies, His person. That's what's in front of us today. So, my goal today is to stimulate you to the wonder and worship that the Apostle Paul felt as he wrote these words. I want to destroy the boredom that comes on some people when they come to church. I want to destroy any deadness of heart, any inability to see the glory of God in some words printed on a page. But I cannot do it, I don't have that power. Only the Holy Spirit of God can do that. He's the only one that can move us to worship. And that's my prayer that he will. And I've been praying it this week, that God would send forth his spirit in this sanctuary right now and move us to worship as he deserves to be worshiped. I believe one of the problems with growing older, with being an adult and, and, and growing older, out of childhood and on into maturity, which is a good thing in itself, usually. But one of the things that we lose is a sense of wonder, a sense of amazement. You know, little children are always amazed by things. They just, they just see things and they just are moved by them. There's a sense of lightning in their eyes. Have you lost the sense of wonder in your life? Sense of amazement? Are your eyes dull like that of a cow? Flat, bored, sightless, dead, colorless? Has that happened to you? Have you lost the ability to be amazed, lost in wonder at God? God? Are you jaded by years of disappointments and frustrations? Or are you still able to marvel in amazement? I think we can be healed from that if we're Christians. I think we have within us the power by the Holy Spirit to be healed from that kind of deadness. I don't think it's any part of the Christian life. And, and it all starts with a one-syllable, actually one-letter word. The whole doxology begins with one letter in the Greek, the omega. It's O. Oh, oh the depth. Which, riches, the wisdom, the knowledge of God. There's a single letter, the letter O, Omega. It's interesting, Jesus, how he says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. I think we end up at O in eternity. That's That's the final letter for us. We're just going to end up there. You may not be there this morning. I may not be able to lift you there by the Spirit today. But if you're a Christian, you're going to end up there. You're going to end up lost in wonder. And that's incredible. Theology was not meant to stimulate our intellects intellects only still less was it uh, to produce grist for our intellectual mill so that we can feel proud about ourselves that we're smart or able to win a, a debate and least of all was theology meant to bore us into sleepy stupor on a Sunday morning deep study of God was ultimately meant for one purpose and that is that we are lost in wonder admiration and praise of the eternal being who created us for this very purpose that we would worship him that's what it's for And we already sang it in one of the hymns change from glory into glory till in heaven we take our place till we cast our crowns before him listen lost in wonder, love and praise what does that word lost mean to you you just lose a sense of yourself you're not worried about you anymore you're not worried about what you're getting or is everyone noticed how am I looking I don't think anybody in heaven's worried about how they look. You like my radiant garments? Aren't they looking good today? (laughs) Well, yes. Just like mine. (laughs) We all have radiant garments. I don't think anybody's even asking. They're lost in wonder, love, and praise. Are you still amazed that God could save someone like you? Does it still bring you to to worship Him that He would save someone like you? Like in in Wesley's hymn, And Can It Be? And Can It Be? Listen to the, the note of wonder and amazement in this. And Can It Be that I... Should gain an interest in the Savior's blood. Died he for me. Who caused his pain. For me. Who him to death pursued. Amazing love. How can it be. That thou my God. Should die for me. Do you see the the amazement in those words? Is that characterizing your walk with Christ today? Do you feel that in your heart now? Now, if you look at this, Paul is totally focused on God. Everything's God-centered here. This oh that I've been... oh the depth. It's all about God. It's focused on Him. Look at it. Look at the whole doxology. He says this, Oh, the depth of the riches, the wisdom, the knowledge of God. How unsearchable His judgments and His paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been His counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay Him? For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be the glory. Do you see how God-centered it is? You can't miss it. He is the center of this doxology. He's the center of the gospel. What amazes Paul here is God. (laughs) What amazes Paul here is the gospel of God. And we've had all of this theology... Uh, Romans 1, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. First for the Jew, then for the Gentile. And then in Romans 1 through 3, he just lays out the universality of sin. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And then he gives us the glowing center of the gospel, Romans 3, 21 through 26. uh, A propitiation or atoning sacrifice. Blood shed by Jesus Christ on the cross. It's our only hope. That is our forgiveness of sins. That the penalty we deserved for our sin, it was paid for by Jesus. Glowing sinner of the gospel. Romans three, twenty-one through 26. And then Romans 4, justification by faith alone, apart from works of the law. Romans 5, assurance. Having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And, and like, like we died in, in, in Adam, now we're alive in Christ, Romans 5. Romans 6 is sanctification. Don't present your body as instruments of wickedness, but present your, yourselves as those who have been brought from death to life and present your bodies as instruments of righteousness. The, the sanctified life, Romans 6. Romans 7, the wrestling with sin. The very thing I hate, I do. The very thing I want to do, I don't seem to be able to do it. That's our experience. Romans 8, the Spirit-filled life. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus who have been made alive by the Spirit of life. He is working out the law of God in our lives all the way through that glorious chapter of assurance that nothing can separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus our Lord. And then in Romans 9 through 11, as we, we were dealing with before Christmas, the problem of the Jews. Why so many of them were rejecting the gospel when so many Gentiles were believing. And how Paul deals with that at the individual level through individual election, vessels of wrath, vessels of mercy, very deep chapter, Romans 9, then Romans 10, the simplicity of the gospel. Just if you, if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. And then Romans 11, God's future for the Jewish nation. Presently, not all the Jews are rejected. There are some Jewish believers. The rejection of the Jews had a purpose. It was to bring the Gentiles to faith so that they would then make the Jews jealous. And then God's future purpose is that all Israel will be saved. There'll be a generation of Jews in the future that are in large numbers going to turn to Christ and be saved. And he gets done with that. And he says, oh, the depth, the riches, the wisdom, and the knowledge of God. Well, where are we in Romans? 1 through 11, doctrine. 12 through 16, real life, everyday practical application. And he's getting there. He's going he, to have little pithy things. You know, be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. He's going to tell us things that we need to do every day. Up to this point, he's been giving us the doctrinal basis. This is the hinge between the two. It's worship. Praising God for it. And he begins with the unfathomable depths of God's wisdom. Look what he says in verse 33. Oh, the depth of the riches, the wisdom, and the knowledge of God. I love to read stories about... Uh, exploration by sea, like Christopher Columbus. I've read biographies of Christopher Columbus, uh, Ferdinand Magellan. Magellan was the first to try to sail around the world. And I thought, well, that would have been really exciting to go uh, around the entire world. He never made it. He died, but his crew finished the, the journey. Anyway, he was, he was halfway across the Pacific, and he wanted to try to find out how deep it was. So he got all the, the loose rope he could find and tied it end to end and tied it to, the, to a cannonball. And he just dropped it over. What do you think happened? What do you you think happened? Ran out of rope. Ran out of rope. Um, He he had 2,400 feet of rope. That's what they measured. So the Pacific Ocean was deeper than 2,400 feet. Well, it is. (laughs) A lot deeper. We don't know exactly where he was when he tried to find out how deep it was. But they estimate he would need 50 times that amount of rope to get to the bottom. And the ocean is given by God... To humble us, in part. Now, the problem is, we are rather amazing beings created in the image of God. And so we've come up with these special kinds of submarines that can go to the actual deepest part of the ocean, six miles down. We've done it. It's like, eh, it's not so deep. Okay, so maybe the ocean, then, isn't the best thing. Let's go with deep space. Now, that'll humble us. We sent out Pioneer 10. And it's estimated that in 300,000 years, it will reach the nearest star. 300,000 years, traveling at 30,000 miles per hour. I think history will end before that, don't you? (laughs) I think it will. I don't think it will ever make it. So let's go with deep space. Infinitely deep, humblingly deep. When I consider the heavens, the work of your fingers, what is man? We are humbled by that. Oh, the depths of the riches, the wisdom, the knowledge of God is too deep for us. He mentions the word riches. He uses this word a lot. The Gospel has come to make us rich if you're a Christian today, you are rich beyond your wildest dreams. You may not feel rich, you may not have enough money to go out to eat after uh, worship today you may not you may be wondering where you 're going to pay your tuition next fall. you may have a bill you think you can 't pay, but according to the scripture, if you are a Christian, you are incalculably wealthy and and Paul uses the word uh, uh, riches or rich again and again in in Romans. I think it was Jesus, though, that first gave us this image. He said, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and hidden again, and then in his joy went and sold everything he had and bought that field. He's a wealthy man, wise man, the riches. Well, here it's a specific kind of riches, the riches of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. What is this? Well... I think it's God's ability to search out before the creation of the world all of the possible universes he could have created. And within the universe he chose to create all of the possible paths that history could take. And in his wisdom and his knowledge to know what was best, which universe was best to create and which path was best to take for the best end and the best step every way along the way, that's the depths of the riches, the wisdom, and the knowledge of God. It's incredible. And then Paul goes on from there to talk about the untraceable mysteries of, of God's path. Verse 33, how unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. You know, I think it's really amazing. If you just realize what's going on here, Paul is basically saying, I wrote it, but I don't get it. I'll try my best to explain it to you. If you bring me Romans 9, I know I wrote it. And I will try my best to explain it. But bottom line, friends, it's unsearchable and beyond tracing out. Now, when I think about unsearchable judgments, what I mean is God's judgments. I don't think it's meaning here... The way that he judges sinners for their sins. I don't think that's it. Like part of it, I think. But it's just the decisions he made as he was planning out the universe. He, he, he came to all kinds of blocks or forks in the road mentally and made a judgment, a decision on what to do. And his judgments are unsearchable. Beyond tracing out. He had everything figured out. And it's unsearchable. So therefore, uh, human beings, be humbled. Your minds are not deep enough to figure out everything that God is doing. You can't figure it all out. Be humbled by it. He says his paths are beyond tracing out. The the Greek word here is literally that of a tracker, somebody that's following uh, someone else, tracking them. Like, for example, in the American West, there were mountain men who had the ability to just track a caribou or or, uh, an Indian war party, or if there was a hostage that had been taken, they could just track and follow Daniel Boone was really good at that. It's amazing what they could do just by looking at marks made in the mud or a broken twig, something like that. Perhaps some of you have seen the Lord of the Rings movies. You remember Aragorn. He had the ability to just follow. Just looking at bare rock, it seems, or scrubby stubble. He just knew where the, where the war party was going. He could follow. And, and when he got to the place where this battle had been fought, he was able just by crawling on the ground, looking on the ground to say, well, this happened and this and this over here, and he got it all figured out. You can't do it with God. You can't connect the dots. They don't seem to make any sense. It seems like the wicked prosper and the righteous go down. It seems like God takes some of his best servants and they die before they're 30. In the midst of fruitful ministries. It doesn't seem to make any sense. Christy and I the other night went to see a, a phenomenal movie called The End of the Spear. It's about uh, Nate Saint, who is the pilot for uh, Jim and Elizabeth Elliot, that whole of the five missionaries that went to the Alka Indians, reaching out to them in, in the Amazonian rainforest. And it is powerful. and so moving. You've got to see it. I don't think it's going to last long. I think it's too Christian, if you know what I mean. But it's in the movie theater. You've got to go see it. It's incredible. But one of the most poignant things for me, especially having my own children, was the effect of Nate Saint's martyrdom on his son. I mean, he just lays there in a fetal position, and, and he can't move. He tried to warn his dad. He said, now, Dad, if they come at you, if they try to kill you, will you shoot them? He said, son, I can't do it. They're not ready for heaven, and we are. He said, well, what are you going to do then? He said, we have to trust God. And then he went and learns a phrase so he can teach it to his, his um, father. If they come at you, please say this. It means, I want to be your true friend. In the movie, he says it with a spear coming out of his body. He's already mortally wounded, and he's saying it up to this man. Now, years later, we can look back and see what God was doing, perhaps, at least at one level, how he led that so many of those people to Christ and how they're going to go to heaven when they when they die. But you talk to that boy right after he finds out his father's dead, the very thing he feared the most. How, how are God's paths looking right now? Beyond tracing out, I don't see it. And some bitterness can start creeping in. Some hard feelings can start creeping in because we can't connect the dots. We don't know what God is doing. Pastor beyond tracing out. Solomon's wisdom is inadequate. Solomon's the wisest man that ever lived. He studied life. Ecclesiastes came out of that study of life. This is what he said. He said, God has made everything beautiful in its time. So decades later, you look back and you can see that was beautiful. But at the time, it doesn't look beautiful. It looks really ugly. This is God has made everything beautiful in its time. He has also set eternity in the hearts of men. Yet, they cannot fathom what God has done from beginning to end. That's it. You can't trace out his paths. It's too high, too lofty, too difficult. Next, Paul talks about the absolute independence of God's position. Verse 34 and 35. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay him? the context here these are direct quotes from the book of job paul's quoting job here now you know the story of job job suffered greatly he lost all of his possessions and children and then he himself was struck with the second wave of the trial serious uh, illness leaving him in agony at first he did not question god but merely worship but that didn't last now did it it didn't last Some people make that interpretive error saying that Job never questioned God. That's not true. At the beginning, he didn't. But uh, what about this? Job 19, verse 6 through 8. He said this, God has wronged me. Now stop and think about that. God has wronged me and drawn his net around me. Though I cry, I've been wronged, I get no response. Though I call for help, there's no justice. He has blocked my way so I cannot pass. He has shrouded my paths in darkness. Those are hard words spoken against Almighty God by a man in suffering. Now, Job repeatedly demanded a hearing from God. He wants to make his defense. He says in Job 31, 35, Oh, that I had someone to hear me. I sign now up my defense, let the Almighty answer me. Let me say that again. Let the Almighty answer me. Let my accuser put his indicting in writing. Wow. Put in that perspective, you may understand why God does what he does at the end of the book. Job 38. Then the Lord answered Job out of a whirlwind. Who is this that darkens my counsel by speaking words without knowledge? Brace yourself like a man, and I will question you, and you will answer me. Where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? Tell me if you understand. Who marked off its dimension? Surely you know. Who stretched a measuring line across it on what were its footings set? Or who laid its cornerstone while the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy? Who shut up the sea behind doors when it burst forth from the, from the womb? When I made the clouds its garment and wrapped it in thick darkness. When I fixed limits for it and set its doors and bars in place. When I said, this far you may come and no farther, here is where your proud waves halts. Have you ever given orders to the morning and it obeyed you? Can you bring forth the constellations and their seasons or lead out the bear with its cubs? Do you know the laws of heaven? Can you set up God's dominion over the earth? Can you raise your voice to the clouds and cover yourself with a flood of water? Do you send the lightning bolts on their way? Do the lightning bolts report to you and say, Here we are. No, 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 no. God did nothing more than ask Job a series of questions. Where were you when I did such and such? Did I ask your advice when I did this or that? Are you able to do... This, that, and the other. That's all he does. And by the time God got done with Job, Job was a changed man. He was thoroughly humbled. He was completely put in his place. And he was healed, friends, from the real disease of his soul. It is a virus that's in my heart and in yours. Because we're all descended from Adam. You know what it is? We are in essential rebellion against God. And it doesn't take many external circumstances to bring it floating to the surface. And the only healing there is, is God gives us himself and we get satisfied. But he didn't answer any of Job's questions. Basically he said, here I am, and that was enough for Job. I want to be cured from that virus, don't you? I want to be free from questioning God. I want God to be enough for me forever and ever. And you know what? In the gospel, I promised that that's where I'm going to end up. And, and so will you if you trust in Christ. If you believe in Jesus as your Savior, you're going to end up totally lost in wonder and praise of this being, not questioning anything he did in history. Job ends up this way. I am unworthy. How can I reply to you? I put my hand over my mouth. I spoke once, but I have no answer. Twice, but I will say no more. I know that you can do all things. No plan of yours can be thwarted. You asked, who is this that obscures my counsel without knowledge? Surely I spoke of things I did not understand, things too wonderful for me to show. You said, listen now, and I will speak. I will question you, and you shall answer me. My my ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you, and therefore I despise myself in dust and ashes." That's healing, friends. It's just healing to get to that place in your life. Basically, what God's speech did for Job in the Old Testament, this doxology, does for us here in the New. It puts us in our place. And he does it, Paul does it, by asking three questions. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has ever been God's counselor? And who has ever given to God something he didn't give them first? First of all, who has known the mind of the Lord? Do you understand God's mind? Do you know what he's doing? Can you match wits with the Almighty? Would you like to play chess with him? Chess is child's play. He's playing universe with six billion people and nations rising and falling. That's what God's doing. You want to play a 64 uh, square chess game with 32 pieces? That's nothing. He had that figured out before the foundation of the world. It's nothing. All right, who has been God's counselor? Can you imagine God asking advice? I'm sorry, let me get more pointed. Can you imagine God asking you advice? I am really struggling right now with the Middle East situation. I mean, it just seems to be spinning out of control. Would you pull up a chair and just help me? Help me think it through. I don't know what to do. I mean, the Palestinians, the the Israelites, they just don't like each other. They, They just hate each other. Would you give me some advice, please, on this? I'm struggling with this. Give me some advice, some counsel. Can you imagine telling him any good idea that he didn't think of before the creation of the world? Can you imagine warning him about some trap that if he goes that way, this might happen, that he didn't already think through what to do? That's not what we're doing in prayer. I hope you know that, giving God advice. We're not giving him any advice in prayer because you're not God's counselor. The Holy Spirit is your counselor, but you are not God's counselor. And then... Thirdly, can you give God anything that's not his already? Do you have that power? Can any artist paint a picture that God didn't already have in his mind? Or of something that God had not actually already created the original of? Can a photographer capture something that was not first in the mind of God and created by God? Can an inventor exult over some invention that God didn't think of first? Can any explorer find some new place that God didn't make? Can a poet or hymn writer write a poet or hymn and the lines weren't first in the mind of God? Now you may say, where then is human worship? How can I worship if it's already God's, all of it? That's a deep question, isn't it? If everything I have is God's already and I'm just giving back to Him what's His, then why why worship? Well, I think the reason is that God wants us to be happy. He loves us. And it's in being like Him that we will be happiest. And it's in being with Him that we'll be happiest. And it's in being focused on Him that we'll be happiness, happiest. And it's because in Psalm 16 it says, In His presence is the fullness of joy. At His right hand are eternal pleasures forevermore. And God so loved the world that He gave. And so there's just a giving nature to God. And when we give to God, we're not giving Him something that isn't His We are just being like God and being close to God. That's why he wants us to give. Now, this brings us to a deep question. Verse 35 says, Who has ever given to God that God should repay him? Does God ever owe anything to anybody? Think about that. Does he owe anybody a good hearing of the gospel, for example? Does he owe it to one person to give a benefit that he gave to another person? Does he owe anybody anything? And let's go to the heart of the matter, the gospel itself. The essence of our capitalistic commercial society is that someone has something that somebody else might want. That person has the right to set their price. When the other person gives the price, that person owes it to the person to give the thing that the price was given for. That's a transaction. You do it all the time at the supermarket, at the, uh, in the mall. You give money, they give what they now owe you. It now is yours as an exchange. Some people think of salvation that God has salvation a commodity. We have repentance and faith. When we give repentance and faith, He then gives salvation. It's fair exchange. Have you ever given to God anything He didn't give you first? It's all His, all of it. For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things, all things. God is the originator of everything. He's the Alpha. Your faith, your repentance, your intellect, your abilities, your opportunities, your family, everything is from God. From Him, through Him, God is the active sustainer of the universe He created. And to Him, it all goes back to God, and He is the judge, and it's all His, and He'll get it all back in the end. From Him, through Him, and to Him. Are all things to Him be glory forever? Now, what application do we take from this doxology? Do you sense that I could have said more about each of these headings? Yes. I actually, I'm not, I don't know that there's any area of my life that this doxology doesn't touch, cover, actually, saturate the centrality of God in all things. I want to give you five quickly. Assess, acknowledge, accept, anticipate, and adore. Just get the tape. Don't worry. Don't write them down. All right? Assess. Is your heart cold toward God? Do you find yourself ever here in worship, for example, just standing and not singing because you just don't like the song? Or you don't like the style? How is your heart toward God? Is your heart cold toward Him or alive toward Him? Is your heart warm toward God? Are you delighted in Him? Assess yourself. Secondly, acknowledge. If the answer didn't come out good on the assess part, acknowledge that you have sinned. Acknowledge that probably it's through worldliness or sin or other things that our our spiritual taste buds are saturated and we're not really interested in God that much anymore. We're just glutted with other things and we just don't care that much about God. And so it's going to take acknowledging that we do not love God the way we should. Acknowledge thirdly accept accept everything that comes to you as from god from him and through him and to him are all things so if it's good things that come abilities spiritual gifts intellect whatever it's god's he gave it to you he's going to want it back it's his stuff so accept that everything you have therefore don't boast don't be arrogant about any gift also don't covet because god gave that ability to some other person i used to be really competitive in basketball and then I got older, and now I'm not so competitive anymore. i just a more open-hearted. Oh, that's a joke, but at any rate, um, you know that's what happens. You know, you, you, you get mellow and more, you know, wiser as you get older. actually, it was a number of years ago that I started to realize. I was playing with some Christian brothers, and we were, you know, we were starting to get competitive. And it, it occurred to me, what do you have that you didn't receive? Another verse teaches the same thing. And this verse here says, From him, through him, to him are all things. Any ability I have to play basketball well, to have the coordination, a good body, it came from God. Well, the same was true of the other individual, too. And everything that we did was in some way glorifying him. Therefore, it really didn't matter. Who put the ball in the hoop? It really didn't matter. From then on, I was really bad on defense. I really didn't... No, that wasn't true. I tried hard. I still tried. But I wasn't frustrated anymore when, despite my best efforts, they still scored. Because it was a reflection of the glory of God. I stopped coveting that. You see what I'm saying? Because God gave it to them. And also, it gives us the freedom from bitterness in adverse trials and circumstances. God takes a loved one. He takes a child. He takes some aspect of your health away. From him and through him and to him are all things. He knows what he's doing. Accept. Fourth, anticipate. Look ahead to the day when this doxology will be right in front of your face. The glory of God. He dwells in unapproachable light. You will see him face to face if you're a Christian. In a minute, we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper. Anticipate as you're taking the Lord's Supper that someday you're going to sit at the banquet table with Jesus and see him face to face. Anticipate. And finally, adore just worship him. Can I Just very practically. Take Romans 11, 33 through 36. Take a phrase and just spend 20 minutes thinking about it alone this afternoon. It might be unsearchable judgments. It might be from him and through him and to him are all things. What does all things mean in your life? Just meditate on that and let God work in you. Close with me in prayer.
0: Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build his kingdom.